Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of December 1st from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah. Find that in your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 2, the passage that uh, was already read this morning during the lighting of the Advent candle. Isaiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning, the first five five verses of Isaiah chapter 2. We begin celebration of Advent. Isaiah chapter 2, I want to read that again. I know you've already heard it, but I want to read it again this morning. The first five verses. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This passage that we read here in Isaiah chapter 2 is also almost word for word found in the prophet Micah chapter 5. And in Micah we also see, in fact this passage comes immediately before a passage that you've heard from Micah that talks about how, as for you Bethlehem Ephrathath, you too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And this passage in Isaiah 2 is found immediately preceding that passage in Micah chapter 5. So in Micah, these verses that we just read in Isaiah are clearly referring to one who will be born in Bethlehem. So Micah is connecting some dots for us that perhaps Isaiah is not. But the same passage in Isaiah chapter 2 is in Micah chapter 4, before it talks about this one who is going to come, who will be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah chapter 1, and we didn't read that, of course, this morning. In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah is talking about how bad things are in Israel. He's talking about how there is a lot of corruption, and how there is a lot of uh, evil, and how there's a lot of violence in the nation of Israel, and specifically in the the city of Jerusalem. Now, Israel, we know, back then was no democracy. It was a, it was a, a, there was a kingdom. There was a king who had ultimate authority. So the people of Israel didn't have a choice necessarily about who their king was. They just knew that he was in charge. And this was a society and a kingdom that, by and large, had turned their backs on God. Yes, they had the title God's people. And yes, they had even uh, shadows and rituals of the worship of God. But by and large, it was by Isaiah's day, a nation that had turned its back upon the worship of God and had embraced idols. We might even look at our own world today and see much the same thing. We might look at the news. We might see our world today and see a nation and see a people and see a, a culture that has by and large 
turned its back upon God. I hate to depress you because I don't want to depress you, but over the next 12 months, you know what's coming, right? Between now and next November, we're going to have um, our favorite time every four years. Campaign year. And over the next 12 months, we're going to hear a number of different individuals claim that they are the person to solve all of our problems. And they will tell you who is to blame for all your problems. And we're going to hear philosophies and approaches and programs and isms. And we're going to hear things about money. And they're going to ask us, one individual after another, to place our hope in them. Now, hope has been something that has been used by not just a handful, but by almost every single candidate in any office ever. But let me suggest something to you. That of all the places we can place our hope in the next 12 months, it will not be in any presidential candidate. It will not be in any individual running for Congress, no matter how well-intentioned or how good of an individual they may or may not be. That our hope this morning is not placed upon even a, a philosophy of government. That our hope this morning is not even primarily placed in anything that's of human origin. Our hope this morning is in the God of Isaiah chapter 2. And it will be not in an election, not in a president or a congressman or a governor or a mayor, that our hope is found in the reign and the rule and the kingship of God. Now, kingship is not something that you and I are probably very used to talking about. We don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy where we pick, in theory, our leaders. But this passage in Isaiah chapter 2 is anticipating and looking forward with hope and with, with wonder at a time when there will be a king. When there will be one who is in charge, who is reigning with absolute authority, and yet it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It is a hopeful thing. And, and as grand as that is, what we're going to see in this passage is that our hope is not just in this king reigning, it is in this king transforming the human heart in the midst of that reign. Let's take a look at this passage, Isaiah chapter 2. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Now, in Isaiah's day, and this is still true in some place, parts of the world today, mountains were considered to be holy. The mountains were looked upon because of their majesty, because of their power, because of their size, because they rise into the sky. They were looked upon as the places of the gods, so to speak. And so what we have is we have some symbolism here. Now we know the city of Jerusalem itself is actually in the mountains of, of Judea. But more important than that, there is this idea that there is a place of power and authority that's represented by this mountain that we see here in Isaiah chapter 2. And what's happening is this. Isaiah is declaring, God is declaring that there will be a day when there will be no one else in authority. It will simply be God himself. 
There will be no other pretenders to the throne. There will be no one else claiming to be in charge. There will be no one else setting down the laws. There will be no one else ruling. It will simply be God himself. And that all other claimants to the throne, all others who would say that they are in charge, all others who would claim to have any power will be defeated. There will be one king over all. Now, again, I know for much of us, we, we think of kings in human terms, and this may not sound like a good thing, but in this case, it is. There will be one in power. You know, as a human race, there has been a lot of pursuit of power through the centuries, hasn't there? People like power, right? People like to be in charge. In fact, so, even this morning, so much of the violence and conflict in our world is the result of the pursuit of power, of authority, the desire to be in charge, to rule, to have, at the very least, no one in charge of us. Well, there's a day coming in Isaiah chapter 2 when that struggle for power is over. I saw a study recently. Uh, this actually was based upon a 2016 article well, I saw an article about this in 2016 in the Atlantic magazine. And it says, researchers have been studying the human desire for power. Now, there's an interesting idea, right? They've been studying the human desire for power. And what they, what they found is that for most people, at least according to their research, the most people want power not necessarily just to control someone else, but they want power so that no one can tell them what to do. They want, and the word's called, autonomy. They want the ability to live their life without anybody else telling them what they can and can't do. Does that kind of sound like a cool idea? Of course it does. We all want it, right? We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want a boss telling us what to do. We for sure don't want the government telling us what to do. We want autonomy, right? We want to be free to do what it is we want to do. And so they've, they've decided that for most people who say they want power, it has this, it has packaged into it or they want this ability to have no one in charge of them in other words they want to be their own ruler now stop me if this sounds familiar we can go all the way back to genesis chapter three and we've done this quite a bit because this is where this all starts and in genesis chapter three god has laid down for adam and eve there in the garden some basic rules not a lot just a couple of rules You've got everything in this garden, he says. It's for, it's, this place was made for you. I've given you everything you could possibly want. Just stay away from that over there. And they don't like being told what to do. And from the very beginning, Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he begins to question, he gets them to question God and say, listen, why is it that God has himself in a position of authority over you? Shouldn't you be able to do what you want to do? And they went, well, yeah, that sounds good to us. And they took the fruit. And from then on, the human race has been trying to, whether it's throwing off the authority of God or throwing off the authority of one another, we have been rebelling against the authority and the power of others. And even today, and sometimes you and I do this, and I do it, I've done it from time to time too, we encourage this rebellion. Now, we don't realize we're doing it sometimes, and, and there's a context that's okay, but 
we, we tell our young people, follow your dreams. Don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. Pursue your dreams. Make your, make, follow your heart. Do whatever's on your mind. Oh, that, that sounds cool until you think it through a little bit. And, and there's a context that that's okay. But I want us to understand, this is not necessarily what God is telling us here in Isaiah chapter 2. We want to believe that we're the masters of our own fate. There's a famous poem called Invictus, and it talks about this idea that we are the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own ship, that we control our destiny. And boy, that's a cool-sounding thing, isn't it? No one can control us. No one can dictate to us. We control our own fate. And anyone who would try to control my fate is evil. Well, be careful. Because you and I are not actually made for, nor can we handle that type of power. What happens to people who get that type of power over their own lives or the lives of others? What happens to us when you and I grab power? Another study was done in 2010. I came across this in Psychology Today. In 2000, and there was an article published in 2010 on the psychology of power. Psychologist, and I, can't, his, I think his name is Dr. Keltner. Sounds like he's probably German. I don't know. He says this. It's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. Now, I'm not going to ask you to cite examples of that. I don't think it takes a lot of looking at the news to find out how people start acting once you give them real power. And it talks about how, in fact, a lot of people pursue power with the best of intentions, but once they get that power, something happens. And they begin to act in ways contrary to what they would have said they were going to do before they got power. Here's the bottom line for us, that when, those, when we accumulate power, something happens to us, because we're not, you and I, designed to have complete autonomy and power. The same article said that there are three things that happen to us when we get a lot of power. One, it makes us selfish. Two, it makes us less aware and concerned about other people. And three, it makes us overconfident. In other words, it makes us proud. And so when we as human beings begin to accumulate power, we become selfish, we become less caring about other people, and we become prideful. And let me ask you this, is that the way to approach God? <laughs> the answer, of course, is no. And yet we live in a world today that says, no one else can tell you what to do. You're your own God. In fact, we even live in a world today where not only can nobody tell you what to do, whether it be about laws or whether it be about anything else, you get to pick your own gender, you get to pick your own race, you get to pick your own species. You are whatever you identify as. It doesn't matter what biology says. I do find it kind of ironic that those who believe often that in what we call the theory of evolution, that you are essentially, that there's, there's, there's nothing out there, there's no God, that they just believe that, you, that there's just biology, there's just materialism, are the same ones denying biology. Biology, say, biology has two genders, by the way. There's male and female. That there's, there's no biology. This is biology. This is nothing... 
we, we, but if you want to deny biology, then you get to pick something else. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any one thing. What I'm trying to illustrate is this. We live in a world where we say we're our own gods and no one can tell us anything. We're in charge. I'm in charge of my own life. I want complete and utter autonomy. And as great as that sounds to many of us at first hearing, the reality is grabbing that type of power, all it does is make us selfish, all it does is make us prideful, all it does is make us less caring about other people. And if you wonder about that, look at the world around us. It's always been that way. Even in Isaiah's day, people wanted the same thing and power did the exact same thing to them as well. And so while we have often placed our hope and autonomy and the ability to do whatever it is we want to do, to rule ourselves, as grand as that may seem on the surface, when you dig below it, it's actually a recipe for disaster. For there is only one in whom rests all power who can handle that power and wield it in our best interests. One of the great lies that we have fallen into is that we can be our own God. It's a great lie of Satan. It's a great lie of his that we're better off in charge of our own lives. Now, some of you may be going, I don't know if I like this too much. Some of you may be bristling up at this a little bit. And I get it. We are, by nature, those who don't want to be ruled by anybody. And yet, God is the one who made us. And this passage we're reading this morning is celebrating and looking with hope on the day when you and I, nor any other human, is ultimately in charge, but our lives have now accepted the lordship, the rule, and the reign of one king god himself and this passage is looking upon that day in hope this morning we're talking about hope and believe it or not it'll be best for us it's a day of hope when you and i release control and give it to god alone that's a good thing that's a that's a that's the great thing in fact it is not just good or great it is absolutely best for us to recognize that he alone is god that we will cede power to him we struggle with this i struggle with this and not just in the sense of someone out there telling me what to do i struggle in my own heart with a constant control who is lord of my life am i lord of my life or is god lord of my life when we come to christ when you and i come to christ when we have perhaps taken that step and said, I have placed my faith in Jesus and what he did upon that cross. When Jesus died for me, when he shed his blood for me, and to to pay the price for my sins, and I pray, Lord, forgive me, I repent for what I have done wrong, I place my faith in Christ, I realize that he did everything on my behalf, and he conquered death on the third day after that. When I do that, I'm also saying that you are now my Lord, and I am restored to a right relationship with God, And no longer am I controlled by sin, but now I have the freedom to obey. He is my Lord. There's a reason Romans chapter 10 says this. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, 
you and I probably aren't going around using the word Lord a lot, but here's the idea behind the word Lord. He's in charge. What He says goes. He has absolute rules. So when we come to Christ and place our faith in Him, what I'm also saying is, your Lord. Jesus, you are now in charge of my life. It belongs to you. And yet, sometimes it can be hard to live that out, can't it? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He has a whole chapter on this conflict between his nature to rebel and his nature to obey. On the one hand, he wants to be obedient to God. On the other hand, he wants to be rebellious against God. And there's this whole chapter on this struggle. Sometimes he does what he wants to do. Sometimes he doesn't do what he wants to do. Sometimes he does what he doesn't want to do. And you're just looking through that whole passage and going, I get that. Every day, it seems like I'm being tempted to do things I know are wrong. I don't really want to do them, but I do them anyway. The things I know I really should do, the things I kind of want to do, I don't do them. And there's this struggle, there's this conflict, even internally in our hearts and souls, about doing the right thing, about truly letting Christ reign in our lives. And here's the hope of chapter 2 of Isaiah. There will be a day when that conflict will be done. You see, it's not just a day of, I don't have to worry about violence out there or persecution out there or, or an evil king here. It's not just that. There will be a day. Now catch this. There's going to be a day that you and I won't have to struggle with sin anymore. There will be a day that you and I will wake up in the morning and being obedient and right with God and doing everything He wants us to do it's just going to be the way we are. We'll be transformed. And we won't have to struggle with those thoughts anymore. We won't have to struggle with those evil thoughts of our hearts. We won't have to struggle with being selfish. We won't have to struggle with resting control from God. It'll be our nature to give Him control and be happy with it. Now, for most of us, that doesn't come easily. And it's a struggle. I don't know about you. I think it's going to be a great day to look to that point in time when I don't have to struggle with sin anymore. It's just I do the right thing because that's who I am now because God transformed me. That's a day of hope. If you've ever struggled with sin, if you've ever fought against the temptation to do the wrong thing, a day where that struggle is defeated and is no longer an issue should be a day of great hope. That's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. A day when, even when I can't understand the circumstances in front of me, when I don't understand, and the truth is, you and I, even today, there's lots of things that God tells us to do, lots of things that Christ said that seem to be difficult to understand, that seem to be difficult to obey. God, I don't see why this should work this way. God, you said I'm supposed to forgive my enemies. That's not the way the real world works. God, you're supposed, you said I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. I don't like them. That doesn't make any sense to me. Lord, that's not the way the real world works. And so we struggle with, I don't, God, understand why you said this. There will be a day when that won't bother us anymore because we'll trust Him so implicitly. We'll trust Him so naturally that it never occurs to us to not trust Him and do exactly what He says. And whether we see it or understand it or not is irrelevant. We just do it because we trust Him 100%. I'm looking forward to the day. I don't have to struggle with faith anymore. 
It just is 100% natural. That's the struggle. That's, that's, that's part of what's going on here. The rain that we see in Isaiah chapter 2 is not simply just a rain of out there. It's a transformation of the human heart. Look at this. Many people, verse 3, many people will come and say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Do, do you see the transformation that's happening here? That the world's being transformed from a people who resist God, who tell God that's not the way we want to do it, to, to a world where people are pursuing and seeking out the Word of God. Can you imagine a world where the UN gets together and says, with a unanimous, I don't know how many different countries are in the UN now, but can you imagine a UN assembly where they all come together and they say, more than anything else at the UN, we want one thing. We want our countries to come together and pursue the Word of God. Can you imagine that? I can't. <laughs> Not. Can you imagine, can you imagine uh, uh, even in, in, in just America, can you imagine Washington, D.C.? The 435 representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, the 100 senators, all the cabinet members, all the judges. Can you imagine them all coming together and saying, we have one goal and one goal only, to lead our nation in the pursuit of the Word of God. Can you imagine that one? Can you imagine that in Little Rock? And yet there will be a day, Isaiah says, that all the nations will stream towards Jerusalem. By the way, see that picture? Because where was Jerusalem out here? Where's, where's it at? It's on, the, it's on the mountains. And how do streams usually flow? So the, there's this picture here of them streaming upstream, going uphill, and they are pursuing the Word of God. That only happens with a transformed human heart. So what we have here is a reign of God with absolute authority and control over his creation and over us. And it's a thing that everybody wants. It's a good thing. It's the, it's the, the world is pursuing it, coming after it, seeking it. Now, by the way, this does not mean, don't, don't misunderstand me this morning, this does not mean there's, there's not a place for leadership and those in power and government or whatever else. I, I don't mean to say all that this morning. There actually is indeed a place for all that. God has established leadership. He has established those with influence and authority over us, whether it is at the government level or whether it's at the family level. God has established those things. But understand this, whatever authority you and I might be in a position of, whether it be in a home or whether it be at a job or whether it be in some form of government or whatever it might be, whatever authority any human has, he only has by the delegated power of God. So as husbands and fathers, you have God has given the husband and the father a position of leadership in the home. That position of leadership in the home is not to be abused. It's only there because God has granted it and it's supposed to be used in a way that reflects God. The kings and the presidents of the world have authority. God says, the scripture says, God has raised up kings and he has taken them down. Authority rests in God. You remember Jesus talking to Pilate? And Pilate says at one point, listen, do you know I can have you crucified? And Jesus says, only because the power was given to you by up above. The Romans, Pilate had no authority unless God had let them have it. 
The problem comes when we who have, or those who have authority forget that God gave us that authority and we abuse it. We become proudful, prideful. There was a day that we will recognize that it is good for God to be in control. It's a, it's a, it's a thing of hope. There will be a day when you and I won't have to worry about injustice or something being unfair or evil and powers of authority. There will be a day when the one who is in charge will be absolutely pure, absolutely just, absolutely righteous, and will do everything right. And I don't know about you, but that, that, that's a hopeful day. And there will be a day when I won't even have to struggle in my own heart with my own rebellion against God. It will be complete, and I will be in right relationship with Him all the time. That's going to be a good, good day. The people desire, they, they go up to the, to the mountain, they say, we desire truth. We desire obedience. They desire and want to be taught. By the way, these are signs that we are, in fact, God's people. They're evidences. They're, they're fruits, if you will, that we are His. I mentioned the, the conflict that Paul describes that so often many of us deal with, this internal struggle. By the way, that struggle against sin in our lives is actually one of the proofs that God gives that we are, in fact, God's. If I don't belong to God, am I struggling against sin? If I, don't, if I don't trust in God, if I don't believe in God, am I really worried about my relationship with Him? Probably not. But if I do, in fact, belong to God, now there's the power, there's a struggle between my sinful self and my, my righteous self. So that struggle actually is, by the way, one of the signs that we are, in fact, God's people. If you find yourself this morning with no desire for God's Word and not really worried about the sin in your life, that might be evidence that you aren't actually God's people. That's one of, the, one of the evidences that we are in fact gods. And one of the evidences that we are in fact Christ is the fact that we do fight against sin and that we do have a desire for his word and for his reign. If I don't have those things in my heart, I might not be who I think I am. Just a little extra bonus idea there for you. You have a hunger for the word of God this morning, the teaching of scripture for a life that honors and agrees with him. Not only, is God, not only is it good for God to be in power here, not only is there a transformed human heart that seeks out and pursues his reign and his word. Look at these last few, ver- this, this last, the last few phrases here in verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Next week, we're going to be talking about peace a little bit more, but there is in this hope of the heart a desire for peace. And this is not saying there was going to be just a lack of warfare. He doesn't just say the nations will stop fighting against one another. He says they won't even begin to prepare for it. In fact, they will actually actively put weapons away. It will, it will be the, the, the nature of the human heart. It will be the nature of the human uh, rulers that they will think that war and violence and, 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 and conflict are so out of mind, they don't even think about it, they don't get ready for them. They turn all their instruments of war into instruments of daily living. War, violence, is so far out, it's not even considered anymore. That would be a cool thing. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. For many of you, like me, we grew up in an era that was called the Cold War when there was this animosity and this 
conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. And even though they never directly fought in any armed conflict for the most part, for that 40, 50 years that took place, there at the very least was not really, there wasn't really peace either. There was always unrest. There was always something that could happen. We were always lived in dread that violence might break out at any point in time. Peace goes beyond that. These verses here talk about a time when there are no more weapons. People aren't even planning for it or thinking about it. It's that level of peace and trust. I don't know about you. That sounds pretty attractive. To live at a time when there is not even the concern of violence. There's not the concern of war. There's not the concern of injustice. There's not the concern of what is right or what is wrong. There's not the concern of even the internal struggle against wrong. It's just everything that's right, and that's the way it is under the absolute rule of God the Father. You see, God's reign is not simply an abstract thing that we talk about on Sunday mornings. There will be a day when we see the reign of God on this earth. That's what this passage is saying. Now, parts of that to me seem almost fantastical and fantasy-like. And yet, this is what the Scripture says. It's hard to, to read the news. It's hard to, to watch the news on TV and come away with any idea that this world could be anything other than the violent, corrupt place that it often is. And yet, there will be a day there will be a day led by this one that we are talking about that was born in a manger. There will be a day when the violence is gone, when the struggle with sin is gone, when the injustice is gone. When you and I are no longer rebelling against the reign of God. And there is peace. And there is righteousness. And there is justice. And there is love. It's ideal. This is the hope of our hearts. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, God says, there will be a day that I will put my law within, their, within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they will be my people for they will all know me. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, mind, of your mind. Let God begin that transformational process even this morning. That changes who we are, that changes us from people who want to rule over our own lives, who gladly, with hope, give control of our lives to God. Hope this morning is not found in laws. It's not found in government policies. It's not found in programs designed to curtail or fight evil, or it's not found in tax policies that incentivize good. Our hope is found in the fundamental transformation of the human heart that only God can accomplish. It's only our hope is found only in the absolute reign of God in our hearts. When this will happen, when Isaiah chapter 2 is fulfilled, I don't know. 
But I do know this. I hope and long for that day. I don't know if I've done it justice this morning. I, I don't know that I've painted a picture that you find attractive or not. But I dearly, myself, in my heart, I long for the rule of, and the reign of God in this world. I long for it. Lord, would you make all this violence go away? Would you make all the injustice go away? Lord, will there be a day when even the internal fight in my heart I have with sin would be over and done and the victory in my own heart would be accomplished? God, please, I want that day. I'm hoping for it, looking for it, waiting on it. There's nothing like that day that is to come. And that's what God has made us for this morning. I don't know when it will happen. I do know this, that for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, this should be our hope. This should be what we long for. And if this morning you do not have that hope, that this, if, if this morning the, if the reign of Christ seems to you something that you're not sure you really want, I'm scared for you. If this idea of, of the reign of God seems something to you that is uncomfortable, I'm frightened for you. Because it may mean that you don't belong to Him. If this morning your hope needs to be found in Christ and in Christ alone, I want to invite you to celebrate this Christmas in a way you probably have never celebrated it before. 2,000 years ago, the people of Israel were hungering for and longing for and waiting for, anticipating the arrival of their Messiah. He came in a way that they weren't expecting to do something they didn't anticipate. But they were looking for him. Every, every corner they could look for, they were looking and waiting for him. You and I know that he came. But just like they were waiting for him to come and reign, this morning we're doing the same thing. <laughs> I am waiting for him to come back to be on that throne and to rule the nations the way he talks about in Isaiah chapter 2. Oh, I want that day to happen. I hope you do too. That's the hope that we have. That's the light that we're looking towards. And if this morning you don't have that hope, if this morning you've, you've, you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've never made Him your Lord. Everything I've talked about this morning has seemed somewhat off and strange and foreign to you. You have the opportunity in the next few moments to change all that. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible says you will be moved from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of God. And you'll move from hoping your hope in man to having your hope in Christ. Oh, that's the only way to live right there. Having your hope in Christ. That's what this Christmas can mean. That's what Advent can mean.